Chapter 2. Welcome to Twin Pines. About three weeks after George had wowed two departments at Berkeley with what would become known simply as the Doomsday Dissertation, 22-year-old Stanley Parker sat in the audience of a courtroom in Boise, Idaho. Conrad Riggs, a 45-year-old alcoholic, was on trial for vehicular manslaughter. Stanley was there because it was his young wife, eight months pregnant with their first child, that was killed when Riggs crashed into their car six months earlier. The trial had only taken four days. The day before, the judge issued final instructions to the jury, and they went into deliberations. The case itself was pretty simple to Stanley and the rest of the observers. Riggs, upset at losing his job at a logical branch of a big bank, had gone out, gotten really drunk, and tried to drive the 1.8 miles to his home. Along the way, he strayed over the center line and hit the old Ford Explorer that Parker's wife used to drive. She was killed instantly on impact, and her unborn child, a daughter, died two days later in the hospital. Since this was the second DUI for Riggs, the charge of vehicular manslaughter was upgraded automatically to vehicular homicide. What Stanley was about to learn was that trials are rarely as simple as they seem. The problem facing the young prosecutor, David Embry, was that the sheriff's deputies who first arrived at the scene were so shaken by the sheer violence of the collision that they failed to administer a blood alcohol test to Riggs, who had escaped with only a few bumps and bruises. Riggs, who had asked for a ride home from one of the deputies, instead heeded the advice of the paramedics and went to the hospital for a full checkup. By the time the sheriff arrived at the scene of the accident, Riggs was already en route to the hospital, which was 30 minutes away. Further complicating matters was the fact that the hospital emergency room was overwhelmed because another accident earlier in the evening involved a school bus carrying a high school football team. While most of those injuries were minor, the hospital staff insisted on being extra careful with the young victims. Rather than wait several hours to be seen, Riggs convinced the paramedics to take him to a different hospital that was another 20 minutes away. The chaos at the first hospital was further compounded by the arrival of Stanley's wife. Although she was clinically dead, the paramedics were continuing CPR in order to give the baby a fighting chance to survive. The sheriff arrived at the hospital almost 90 minutes after the accident, and he spent another 45 minutes trying to find Riggs. Nobody in the emergency room knew anything about him. The sheriff, who was getting angrier by the minute, received word 50 minutes later that Riggs had been transported to another hospital. With lights flashing and siren blaring, the sheriff made the trip to University Hospital in just under 15 minutes. When he arrived, he was given the news that Riggs had just left the hospital with a clean bill of health. When the sheriff finally got a call that Riggs had been located at a bar just off campus, the sheriff thought his ordeal was over. But Riggs had other ideas. Riggs was actually quite clever, and he had already called a high-powered lawyer and filled him in on the evening's events. The lawyer, a slickster from New York City, had advised him to find the nearest bar and have several drinks as soon as possible. He told Riggs that it was inevitable that he would be found and arrested, but if he were already drinking again when they found him, the results of any blood alcohol test would be invalid as authorities would be unable to pinpoint his exact blood alcohol content at the time of the accident.
Riggs heeded the advice, chugging two beers and two shots immediately, and pulling several empty bottles from adjacent tables and arranging them in a neat row on his table. Then he waited, making sure that the waitress never removed the empty bottles and glasses. It took the campus police 35 minutes to locate Riggs based on sightings from students who remembered seeing him at the bar, and they immediately notified the sheriff and waited for him to arrive to make the arrest. Then the sheriff made the first of several mistakes of his own. In his long-simmering anger, the first instinct was to return Riggs to the hospital to have them administer a blood test. It would be much faster than making the 45-minute drive back to his substation to administer a sheriff's department test. The problem was, Riggs refused to give the hospital consent. Since he had already been discharged, they could not legally admit him against his will, and the sheriff could not compel him to take a test without a court order. Thirty minutes went by before the sheriff finally admitted that there was nothing he could do. So he drove Riggs back to the sheriff's station. By the time his blood was drawn, almost five hours had elapsed since the accident. Much to Stanley's ultimate dismay, none of this information was made available to the jury. True to his well-earned reputation, Riggs's lawyer successfully argued that all of this information was inadmissible. The young prosecutor was completely blindsided by the multitude of motions and hearings, and before he knew what was happening, his case had all but disappeared. Stanley only received the information because he'd been in close contact with the sheriff over the months leading up to the trial. The jury was only told that Riggs had an estimated blood alcohol content between 0.06 and 0.11%. It was left up to them to sift through the competing estimates from experts that testified for the defense and the prosecution. Then if, and only if, they determined, beyond a reasonable doubt, that Riggs had a blood alcohol content of 0.08 or above, could they consider the most severe charge of vehicular homicide. Riggs testified that he had swerved to avoid a deer and was regaining control of his car when the accident occurred. This story could neither be confirmed nor denied, as there were no other witnesses. He concocted that story because he knew that the stretch of road where the accident happened had multiple deer strikes in the preceding months. While Riggs was certainly not a sympathetic witness, the prosecutor was unsuccessful in painting him as an outright liar it was impossible for the jury to simply dismiss his testimony. This was important because the lesser charge of vehicular manslaughter relied on whether or not Riggs had acted recklessly or with blatant disregard for human life. It was a tall order, and one that was beyond the scope of the prosecutor to make stick. When the jury returned after only a few hours of deliberation, Riggs was found not guilty of vehicular homicide, not guilty of manslaughter, and not guilty of driving under the influence. In what would later be described by a juror as a sympathy verdict, the jury found him guilty of reckless driving, but deadlocked on the question of whether this was the proximate cause of the accident. The judge could only sentence him to a fine, a six-month suspension of his license, and court-mandated alcohol counseling. He left the courthouse long before Stanley could muster the strength in his legs to stand up and leave the courtroom. When Stanley did finally leave, he got into his car and drove straight through to Northern California. He didn't even stop at his apartment to gather his belongings. Eighteen hours later, when he showed up in the small town of Twin Pines, California, he had nothing but his car and the clothes on his back. 
he would never return to Boise. Before he even checked into a hotel, he stopped at the local sheriff's office and filled out an application to become a deputy. Since he had served as a military policeman in the U.S. Army, his application was received warmly. A few days later, after he passed his criminal background check, he was hired. He vowed to himself that he would never allow what had happened to him to happen to anyone else. His single-minded dedication to bring criminals to justice became legendary. Naturally, he paid special attention to drunk drivers. Twin Pines, California had a terrible reputation for drunk drivers, as the loggers, ranchers, and wealthy tourists tended to take advantage of the sleepy town's slow pace and apparent lack of cops. Stanley changed that instantly, staking out the few taverns and bars in town and nabbing suspected drunks as soon as they pulled away. He even went as far as arresting bartenders for over-serving customers after he had arrested the drunk drivers. In his first year as a deputy sheriff, Stanley amassed an unprecedented arrest record with almost 75% resulting in convictions. His willingness to work long hours, especially on weekends, endeared him to the sheriff, who was happy to take the credit for the stellar results of Stanley's work. The sheriff at the time, Montgomery Bowden, was 63 years old and quite complacent in semi-retirement. Since he never really cared for the political bullshit that permeated the management of the small towns in the foothills that defined his jurisdiction, he was always amused when mayors and town councilmen tried to coerce him to rein in his overzealous deputy. He would just sit back in his chair, tip his wide-brimmed cowboy hat, and act like he was in deep thought before answering their complaints. Well, Mr. Mayor, he would start in his best imitation of a Texas drawl, unlike you and your town council, I've been elected to keep the peace and see to the safety of our citizens. Far as I can tell, resting drunk drivers before they can go out and cause accidents accomplishes both of those goals. Only folks complaining seem to be the drunks and the politicians. <laughs> He'd pause after saying that last part savoring the uncomfortable looks and fidgeting that always ensued. Is there something I'm missing? Naturally, nobody could dispute those facts, and the conversations usually ended shortly thereafter. In one heated town hall meeting in Twin Pines a few years back, several citizens, both had been arrested for DUI, were extremely vocal in their dislike of Deputy Parker and his methods. The crowd was starting to get behind them when Sheriff Bowden stood up and addressed the crowd. He began by removing his hat and taking off his badge, placing both in sight on the podium. Well, here's my badge and my beloved hat. You're welcome to them if you'd like. But before I leave, I'd like y'all to consider some of the facts. Before I hired Deputy Parker... Twin Pines averaged 15 alcohol-related accidents a year with an average of two fatalities. Overall crime was up, with alcohol-related vandalism leading the pack. We had break-ins and even smarm robberies. Last year, we had one alcohol-related accident and no fatalities. Our crime rate last year was the lowest since they started keeping track, and that was back during the gold rush. He smiled as he watched heads begin to nod. According to the Chamber of Commerce, tourism is up some 40% this year, as people with families are making the drive from the cities to sample our hospitality. 
That don't make it right, heckled one of the drunks. Don't make it wrong, neither, the sheriff retorted. Makes us safe, I'd say. But if y'all want to go in a different direction, I'll just see myself out. And with that, the sheriff walked towards the exit. He could hear the crowd murmuring as he moved, and he nodded to a few of his friends, tipping his imaginary hat to the ladies. Less than ten seconds later, the mayor was at the microphone. Sheriff! Sheriff Bowden, come on back! We can't let ourselves get sidetracked by a couple of loudmouth drunks. The crowd applauded, and the sheriff stopped, turning slowly back towards the stage. He remembered sitting in the mayor's office not three weeks earlier and defending Deputy Parker to him. Funny how that works, he thought. Somebody stood up and patted him on those back as he made his way back to the podium. The applause died down as he plucked his hat from the podium and slowly adjusted it on his head. The crowd grew silent as he picked up his badge and rubbed it with his thumb. Well, I'll gladly stay for a bit if y'all think I'm doing a good job. Applause filled the auditorium. And with that, he pinned his badge back on his chest, pointed an angry finger at the two troublemakers and said, If y'all drive drunk, we will arrest you. Again. And he tipped his hat and walked out. God, how he loved the drama of politics. Sheriff Bowden served out another two years before amicably passing the mantle to Stanley, his personal choice for his successor. Stanley won the election in a landslide, and that reaffirmed his mandate as a law and order sheriff. He became so enamored of his reputation that he even bought an Old West-style cult six-shooter and wore it slung low on an equally classic gun belt the kind with the bullets wrapped all the way around. He wore it at all his public appearances. Of course, when he was working, he still carried his Smith & Wesson 9mm. But whenever he could make an excuse, he strutted around town like an old West gunslinger. If he wasn't such an unsociable douchebag, people might have thought that he looked kind of cool. A few months after his election, Stanley had been frustrated for several weeks. He hadn't made a drunk driving arrest in over five weeks, the longest stretch since his arrival from Boise. He had always imagined that his first months as sheriff would start out with a bountiful harvest of drunks, cementing his reputation as a tough-as-nails lawman. In the three years he served as a deputy, he began to see himself as a bona fide badass, not unlike a modern-day Wyatt Earp. He was itching to get his tenure started, with a bang when he had his first run-in with George Porter. It was an encounter that would have long-lasting ramifications. Stanley was heading back to the station from the mayor's office when he saw George leaving the Woodshed Bar and Grill, one of the more popular restaurant bars in Twin Pines. George was driving his camouflaged Humvee, and he swerved a little bit after entering the highway. There was no way for Stanley to know that George had jerked the steering wheel because he had spilled his drink in his lab. Even so, the SUV only moved slightly to the right before George corrected course. But it was enough for Stanley to turn on his lights and siren and pull him over. Stanley was happy for several reasons. Of course, he was happy to catch another drunk driver, but he was also happy because he'd seen that Humvee around town before and he didn't like it. 
It bothered Stanley that this monstrosity was not the civilian version, but a fully militarized version. It was too big, too loud, and even appeared to him to have bulletproof windows. He always wondered if it was armored. He knew that George Porter owned the ridiculous vehicle, and he'd heard various rumors about the reclusive family that lived on the big ranch just outside of town. Now he would have an excuse to thoroughly inspect that vehicle when it was impounded, as all vehicles driven by drunks were. Unfortunately for Stanley, George wasn't drunk. Unfortunately for George, he was in a bad mood after a series of meetings in San Francisco didn't go as well as planned. His already foul mood was exacerbated by the newly minted sheriff's crusade. When Stanley sauntered up to the driver's side window of the Humvee, George pulled open the tiny window, which was little more than an air vent cut into the bulletproof glass. Can I help you, officer? George asked. Stanley made the hand motion for rolling down the window, an instruction that George physically could not comply with. George shook his head and leaned down to the window slot again. Uh, These windows don't go down. Uh, How can I help you? Stanley, now getting upset, stepped back and screamed, Get out of the car! Slowly! He had his right hand on his six-shooter as George opened the door, trying to keep his hands in sight. Have you been drinking, sir? What? No. I just got a dinner to go, and I'm on my way home, officer. Stanley was getting more and more upset. He wasn't a police officer. He was the sheriff. While there was no reason for George, or anybody else for that matter, to see that distinction, it was a very big deal to Stanley. It's Sheriff Parker, not Officer. Uh, I'm sorry, George explained. I, I didn't know. What can I help you with? George was trying to be accommodating, but Stanley interpreted his attitude as being patronizing and disrespectful. The word sheriff was emblazoned all over his car, front and back, and both sides. Even his badge, which he had special ordered, had the word sheriff etched into it in very large letters. He wasn't going to take any shit from this wannabe military dickhead. Turn around, face the car. Put your hands on the car and step back, Stanley ordered. Huh? What's going on? George asked, concern growing in his voice. Stanley had had enough. He roughly grabbed George's shoulder and spun him towards the Humvee, pushing him forward towards it harshly. Hey, George protested. Shut up and put your hands on the car, Stanley ordered again. George complied, and Stanley frisked him. When he was sure that he wasn't carrying any weapons, he roughly spun him back around and pushed his back against the Humvee. By this time, a small crowd was gathering on the curb. How much have you had to drink? Nothing, George yelled back. I already told you that. What the hell do you want? Don't raise your voice at me. I'll ask the questions. George took a deep breath and looked over at the crowd. Then he looked at the sheriff's car and noticed the dashboard-mounted camera. He saw the little red light flickering, so he knew he was being recorded. Sheriff, I have not had anything to drink. I demand to know why you stopped me and why you are harassing me. I stopped you on suspicion of drunk driving while intoxicated. You were driving erratically. Step to the curb, please. Why? I told you I haven't been drinking. The sheriff started to get angry again, and he shoved George towards the curb. George raised his hands and said, There's no reason to get physical, officer. I'm fully complying with your demands. 
The use of the word officer had the desired effect on Stanley. He shoved George again. This time, George lost his balance and fell. Get up! Stanley grabbed George roughly by the arms and half-dragged him to the curb and stood him up. Do you consent to a field sobriety test, sir? George nodded and followed the sheriff's instructions. Since George had not, in fact, been drinking, he performed the sobriety test flawlessly. Unfortunately for Stanley, who had worked himself into a near-manic state, he fudged the written report to make it seem like George had not passed. In fact, he was so out of control that he completely forgot about the dash cam in his car, a fact that would later come back to haunt him. Stanley handcuffed George's hands behind his back, making sure to lock the cuffs just a bit too tightly. He stood in front of George and looked him right in the eye. You're under arrest for suspicion of driving under the influence. George stared him right back in the eye. It's not too late for you to correct your mistake, officer. You know I'm not drunk, but you've handcuffed me and arrested me. If you change your mind right now, officer, I won't press charges and sue. But if you proceed, George told him, again using the word officer with deliberate emphasis, I will vigorously defend my rights in criminal and civil court, and you will be very, very sorry. Stanley had heard enough. The disrespect of this eccentric asshole had pushed him over the edge. He grabbed George so forcefully that George again lost his balance, falling backwards on the sidewalk, scraping his cheek against the ground hard enough to cause a noticeable abrasion. Stanley picked him up and led him back to the back of his car, shoving George in so hard that George bumped his head on the door sill, causing a welt. Although George was angry, he held his composure, even managing a smile as the sheriff slammed the door. George was able to look beyond the immediate discomfort and embarrassment and see the big picture. This guy had gone way over the line. George was certain that with the dash, that with the dash cam footage, he would be able to sue the county, maybe for millions of dollars. If the sheriff wasn't fired, he would certainly be severely reprimanded, and George could not see any scenario where he would not be paid hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars. As he mulled all of this over in his mind, he saw something that made his smile grow wider. Sheriff Parker was searching his vehicle, tossing his belongings out into the street and slamming interior components around, definitely causing damage. George Schott thought that the illegal search would add to his winnings in court. When he was through raping George's Humvee, Stanley called for assistance from one of his deputies, who arrived on scene about five minutes later. All there was for the deputy to do was supervise the impounding of the vehicle. After issuing his instructions, Sheriff Parker pulled away from the scene, smiling at how well he thought this arrest had gone. In fact, the sheriff was so pleased with himself that he personally booked George into jail, even stepping behind the camera to take the prisoner's photographs. Had he allowed another deputy to process George, he might have had time to calm down and think things through. Things like the dash cam. Things like the crowd of bystanders that had gathered and watched the whole affair. Things like the fact that his search of George's vehicle was unconstitutional. But... He didn't think about any of those things. All he could see was Wyatt Earp, badass lawman busting another outlaw. He was even humming a tune as he filled out the paperwork. George had thought about all of these things. 
In fact, he'd been thinking about all of these things from the moment he saw the blinking red light on the dashboard of the sheriff's car. While Sheriff Parker was humming his tune and fudging the paperwork for George's arrest, George was making his phone call. He called Elliot Fusco, a local attorney who had retired to Twin Pines after a very successful career as a criminal attorney in San Francisco. Since there wasn't a whole lot of criminal work to do in Twin Pines and surrounding areas, Elliot had become more of a general practitioner. He had done various work for George over the past several years, and the two men had become friends. George was happy to meet someone on a very high intellectual level. Elliot was always someone that he could talk to as an equal. Elliot enjoyed his time with George for the same reason. Normally, that's not much to base a friendship on, but in a small town like Twin Pines, it was more than enough. Elliot was thrilled to get George's phone call and hear the details of his arrest. He had represented many of the junk drivers that fell prey to Sheriff Parker's brand of justice, and he was itching to take the sheriff down a peg or two just for sport. This sounded like the perfect set of circumstances to make a big stink. When George's call came in, Elliot had been finishing up an email to his eight-year-old son, Kevin, who was with his mom in San Francisco for the week. After hearing the details from George, he closed his laptop and rushed out of the house. He didn't even bother to put on a tie, something that he almost always did. Old habits die hard. But he didn't want to waste any time at all before he confiscated the dash cam from the sheriff. It would only take him five minutes to get from his house to the sheriff's station, and he didn't even let that time go to waste. He dialed his friend and municipal court judge Maurice Wilkins from his car. After explaining the situation, Elliot explained to the judge what he needed and emphasized the need to act quickly. The judge was hesitant at first, but as Elliot pulled into the parking lot of the station, the George relented and agreed. Elliot smiled as he entered the station. Elliot walked right past the reception desk and knocked on the glass door of Sheriff Parker's office. The sheriff looked up from his paperwork and rolled his eyes when he saw Elliot. Come on in, counselor, he yelled. Good afternoon, Stan, Elliot said as he opened the door. I represent George Porter. Have you administered a blood alcohol test yet? Stanley stood up with papers in hand. Oh, that was fast. I just finished the paperwork and I'm about to supervise the test right now. Let's go, Elliot said, holding the door open. Not so fast. You can't be in there with him while I administer the test. The hell I can't, Stan. He's represented by counsel. You can't say a word to him without me being there, and I have every right to be present during the test. I know you're new at being sheriff and all, but do I really need to cite the law to you right now? Stanley looked into Elliot's eyes, wavered, and then walked through the door. Come on, then. As they walked through the station, Elliot began to smile when he realized the sheriff had no idea what he was getting himself into. You know, it's not too late for you to dismiss the charges. George told me that he offered you that chance earlier. Like hell I will. He's going down for DUI and that's that. The fact that he lawyered up faster than a mafia hitman doesn't mean a thing to me. Elliot stopped walking. Stan, let's talk for a second before we go on. Stanley stopped and looked at, looked at Elliot suspiciously. What do you think you can say that will change my mind, Elliot? You know how this is going to go. Why delay the inevitable? 
Elliot took a deep breath and looked Stanley up and down before speaking in a soft but authoritative tone. You're right. I do know how this is going to go, but I don't think you do. So let me explain a couple of things. First of all, my client wasn't drunk. Second of all, you had no provocation to pull him out of his car and rough him up. Third, you were completely out of bounds with your search of his vehicle. Elliot let this sink in for a minute before proceeding. I'm giving you a chance, right here, right now, to let this whole thing go before it gets out of hand. Because when he blows a point zero zero, we're going to go after you with everything we have, and we're going to win. Big. Stanley, still blinded by his sense of invincibility, just laughed and started walking again. <laughs> I got him by the short hairs, counselor, and you don't scare me. Suit yourself. Oh, I will, Elliot. I will. And with that, Sheriff Parker had entered the holding area where George was handcuffed to a chair. Elliot nodded to him and winked. George smiled back. If you don't mind, I'd like to go ahead and get the breathalyzer test done, and then you can confer with your client. Elliot nodded. Go ahead. And then he had a thought. Sheriff, I, I wonder if you wouldn't mind videotaping this. The sheriff smiled. He was always ready to videotape the processing of drunks. He once had a drunk fall down during a test, and then he tried to sue the county for negligence when it was his own drunkenness that caused his injuries. I'd be delighted, the sheriff pointed to a deputy. You want to get the video cam and record this for me, Phil? Sure thing, sheriff, Phil replied. He reached under the desk and pulled out a video camera, checked the settings, turned it on, and began recording. He gave the sheriff a thumbs up, and the sheriff proceeded with the test. Neither George nor Elliot said a word during the test. They both knew what the results were going to be. Sure enough, after the first test, the machine recorded a 0.0% blood alcohol content, which shocked the sheriff. George and Elliot remained silent when the sheriff ordered George to repeat the test. The second test was the same as the first. 0.00%. Elliot smiled at the sheriff's confused expression as he pored over the results. I'd like my client released immediately, Sheriff, Elliot ordered. Stanley looked at Elliot with hatred in his eyes. He knew there was nothing more he could do. He turned without a word and left the room. Elliot followed. I'd like a copy of that report, too, Sheriff. You can have a copy when it's done, Stanley answered with venom in his voice. No, it's not. The investigation ended when my client blew a point zero zero. I want a copy of that report right now, Sheriff. Stanley stopped and looked at Elliot again. Again, he felt helpless and knew that he was powerless to do anything, certainly not in front of everyone at the station. Elliot just stood there, smirking, holding his hand out. Stanley handed the report to a deputy and told him to make a copy. Stanley had only taken two steps toward his office to sulk when he saw a sight that chilled his blood. Right outside the front doors, a deputy was removing the chip from his dashboard camera unit. What the hell? He ran out the front doors and screamed at the deputy. What the hell are you doing to my car? The deputy looked up, got out of the car, and backed away from the angry sheriff. Sir, a, a court order just came in instructing me to secure the chip and deliver it to Judge Wilkins. The hell you say? Give me that! 
I wouldn't do that if I were you, Stan. You're in enough trouble as it is. Stanley didn't realize that Elliot had followed him outside. Stanley spun around and started towards Elliot so fast that Elliot was afraid that Stanley would punch him, or worse. Fuck you, Elliot! What have you done? Elliot was now feeling secure since several other deputies had come outside to see what the commotion was about. Well, Stan, as I was trying to tell you inside, I informed Judge Wilkins that your dash cam had evidence that I'll need in my criminal investigation of your conduct and my civil suit that will follow, and I wanted it secured so it could not be accidentally misplaced or tampered with. Just then, a deputy handed Elliot a copy of the sheriff's report. Stanley just stood there in shock as the ramifications of his actions began to occur to him. Elliot opened the report to the page with the documentation of George's roadside sobriety test. He raised his eyebrows and then looked at the sheriff. Interesting report, Stan. Very interesting. See you in court. And with that, Elliot turned and strolled to his car. He couldn't wipe the smile from his face. When George left the station a few minutes later, the sheriff was still standing on the sidewalk in front of the station. George didn't bother to even look at him. George knew that they would see plenty enough of each other over the next several months.